I'm going to adjust the podium here from Eric Mason size to cricket size so we can. And while I do that, uh, let me tell you just what a joy it is to be here at the Acts 29 Global Gathering. I can look out in this room and see so many people who are an ongoing blessing uh, to me, some of you that I know, some of you that I don't, and I'm just so thankful for Acts 29 and for your partnership in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, the passage that we're going to be uh, looking at uh, together over the next uh, couple of days. But I'd like for us to begin reading with verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5, and to read on down through verse 9 with the clause that we'll be talking about today in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 5. And since this is the Word of God uh, coming with the exact same authority as the voice of Jesus himself, would you please stand for the reading of our God's Word? The Holy Spirit says through Matthew, and Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May God bless His word to us today. You may be seated. Eric uh, mentioned that I'm a native Mississippian. And before I was uh, doing this, I was serving at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and had a student who had never been in the South before. Uh, the, the furthest South in the United States he'd ever been uh, was uh, Louisville, Kentucky. He'd come from the Pacific Northwest and didn't really know much uh, about the South, and especially the Deep South. He went with me as I was speaking in my home state in Mississippi, and as he was there, I introduced him to a pastor friend of mine who pastors there in Mississippi. And uh, the, the pastor just assumed, well, this guy is an intern with Russell Moore. He must know him or know his family from somewhere. Uh, maybe his father is a pastor, and maybe I would know his father. And so he turned to my intern and said, who's your daddy? Perfectly reasonable Mississippi sort of question. <laughs> Not a reasonable question for this kid from Portland, Oregon. <laughs> so he's thinking through maybe this is some Southern Baptist sort of greeting. <laughs> and so my student sat there in silence for a minute or two and said, You are? So the pastor just said to me later, what's wrong with him? <laughs> now, the, the reason why in that culture, so often when there's a conversation, it comes to who's your father, who's your mother, who's your relatives? 
is because there's a sense in which every culture recognizes that we don't just come out of nowhere. We're connected. And, and every culture recognizes in some way or the other that one's father is a, a necessary means of determining who I am. Where am I going? What's my life about? There's something pivotal and significant about one's fatherhood. That's the reason why we will have, uh, even in, in the North American culture and Western European culture and other cultures, one's last name is telling you who one's father is. Even those who in the feminist movement would say, I'm not going to take any man's last name, still end up with the father's last name. And if they say, I don't want my father's last name, I'm going to take my mother's maiden name, just end up with a grandfather's last name. <laughs> There's something that moves through cultures about the necessity and the distinctiveness of fathers, which is seen in the way that so often when there are absent fathers whether through abandonment or through neglect or through abuse, the result can be a gaping hole that is, is often filled with rage. Why? What is so powerful about fatherhood? Why is it that many of you right now in the churches that you're serving will find that some of the people that are giving you so much difficulty, that you're, you're trying to deal with, sometimes the way that they're responding to you says much less about you or them or the dynamics of the church and more about dynamics that went on years and years ago between a child and a father. A father who was authoritarian or a father who was distant or a father who had too high of expectations or a father who had too low of expectations. The ripples of fatherhood just go on and on and on. And in this passage of scripture that we just read some moments ago, Jesus teaches us when asked, how do we pray? The first words, our father. Now, that doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus has been teaching before this about what it means to live a life as a follower of Christ. And he says repeatedly, your father, when you pray, you do not need to be seen by others. You do not need to rely upon the audience and the performance in front of you. Your father hears you. You do not need to come before God as the pagans do with lots and lots of empty phrases, with ways to try to manipulate your God with the, 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 the amount of your words, with the sorts of words that you use. You don't come before God, Jesus says, like the priests of Baal did in 1 Kings 18 and 19, cutting themselves and screaming to try to get the attention of their God. No, your God is your Father. He hears you. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples and through them teaches us to pray, it's significant that the first words here is our Father. Now, Jesus has told us elsewhere 
that there's a connection between God's fatherhood of us in Jesus Christ and the picture that he has embedded in creation of fatherhood. It's not, it's not one-to-one. It's not parallel. But Jesus will say, how many of you fathers, even though you are evil, when your child says to you, give me a rock, will give him a stone? How many of you fathers, even in your sin and in your fallenness, when your child says, give me a fish, will give him a snake? He says, none of you. How much more so will your father give you what it is that is needed? He says there's a connection here in the same way the Apostle Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians, the Father, God, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. Our Father. So what does that mean? Well, there are several components of this we need to understand as we're praying to God as our Father. The first is identity. The fatherhood of God reframes and changes our identity. We, we mentioned a few moments ago about last names. In, in, the, in the biblical narrative, uh, people don't have last names, but they're known by something that's the equivalent. Simon, the son of Jonah. John, the son of Zebedee. You are identified in terms of your Father and in terms of your forefathers and in terms of your tribe, you, you have this identity that is present there from father to child. Now, when Jesus says, when you pray, pray to our father, that has everything to do with who you are. Your God hears you Your God responds to you, and your God does not respond to you as somebody who is doing a transaction with you. Your God responds to you the way that a father responds to the cry of his child. Your God identifies himself with you because your father identifies himself with Jesus. So we see so often in the New Testament the voice of God coming out of the sky and saying the same thing at the baptism, at the transfiguration, at other places. This is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. Or personally directed, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. God identifies himself with Jesus Christ, is not ashamed of him as his son. And the scripture says that we are included in Christ so that the same father that Jesus cries out to, we cry out to. So that what the spirit does is to Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. Now, that is not a sweet, soft, sentimental sort of cooing. In the context of Romans 8, it is along with the screaming of creation for the revelation of the sons of God. Jesus, the Son, 
cries out through us, Abba, Father. And he does so as the Spirit is moving us to pray when we don't even know how we ought to pray. And when does he do this? When does Jesus show us what it means to cry out, Abba, Father? He does so in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus praying through us to the Father by the Holy Spirit gives us an identity of people who are able to call God as Father. We don't need to get that by performing as we would in front of the the people around us with our long prayers. We don't get that by performing even to God, by constructing prayers or constructing ways to manipulate God to give us what it is that we need. God recognizes us. God sees us as Father identity. But the second piece of this is inheritance. Fatherhood in Scripture is tied up everywhere with inheritance. And that's something that is really difficult for most contemporary Western people to really understand. Because when we think of inheritance, we tend to think of something for super wealthy people. Trust fund kids driving around in Malibu have an inheritance waiting for them that somebody's managing. Or we think of it as something that's just kind of, uh, just kind of incidental to your life. Aunt Flossie dies, she leaves you a lamp. You, you know, have it, put it there in your house. Neither of those two things have anything to do with a biblical understanding of inheritance. In Scripture, the inheritance that comes from a father to a son is not a pile of money. It's not an object. An inheritance would be a piece of land that has been farmed and cultivated. Or the inheritance would be a business, say a a carpentry shop that's been built up. That's the reason why in the New Testament it is so shocking that when Jesus walks up to Peter, James, and John and says, come and follow me, and they drop their nets and they follow him, anyone hearing this gospel account would have the same sort of shocked reaction that the crowds would have when they heard Jesus telling about the prodigal son, asking for his inheritance to go to a far country. It would seem as though Peter, James, and John were cutting themselves off from their father, from their grandfather, from their great-grandfather, from their, all of the sacrifices that had been made for them, and they're cutting themselves off from their future children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. That is part of what fatherhood is, is the giving of an inheritance, which means the giving of a future. The scripture tells us that if we are in Christ, then we are united to him, we are hidden in him, which means that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. He has co-signed with us. We are joint heirs. If children, then heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Your future 
is determined for you by the fatherhood of God, which means that that changes the way that you pray. You don't need to manipulate God. You don't need to find some way to direct God toward what it is that you know that you need, which is, frankly, the way that I find myself praying so often. Here's my life plan. Here's what I need. Here's where I need to go. And God, I need your supernatural power to carry out my natural plan. No, 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 no. The inheritance that God has given to you means that your future is secure. God is moving you in a direction, and the fatherhood of God tells you not only who you are, but tells you where you're going. Our Father. And the third component of fatherhood in Scripture is discipline. That's also something that we misunderstand. Because often we think discipline, we think of rebuking kids. We think of time out. And of course, that's, that's part of uh, discipline. But in Scripture, discipline is formation and formation toward a goal. Discipline includes teaching. Discipline incur- in- includes instruction. And discipline includes rebuke and reproval. And that's why the Scripture says fathers don't be harsh and exasperating of your children, Ephesians chapter 6. And why the scripture tells us, don't be negligent. And the sort of father who is not giving discipline, as Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel 2 and 1 Samuel 3. It is not a self-focus. A father is always disciplining his child. 24 hours a day. The question is, toward what is he disciplining that child? A father who doesn't correct a child, a father who doesn't teach a child, is a father who is still disciplining that child. Just disciplining that child not to care about the word of God. Disciplining that child not to care about the coming day of judgment. The father is not like this. The scripture says that everything that is coming in the plot line of your life, Everything that God is providentially putting into your life right now, all of your difficulties, all of your struggles, all of your skirmishes, all of your crises, all of those blessings that that seem to suddenly come, that, that person that you meet, that friendship that you form, that prayer that is prayed for you, that, that book that you read, that conversation that you have. All of those things are part of the Father's work in shaping you and forming you in order to be an heir of the inheritance that he's giving you of the kingdom. That is what your Father does. So the fatherhood tells you who you are, fatherhood tells you where you're going, and fatherhood tells you how you're going to get there through him. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father. There's a nearness there, a a connection between a father and his child. But notice there's also a distance. Our father in heaven, the father who is close to you is a father who is very distant from you 
as well. This is not a father of the earth. This is a father of heaven. The, 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 the place, as Jesus will describe it later in this prayer, where God's will is done. My will is not done. Satan's will is not done. The earth's will is not done. The Father's will is done. There is a distance there, and that in and of itself is a grace and a mercy for us to know and for us to pray. Because not everybody in here has been trained by a good earthly father to know what fatherhood is. Many of the people that you are going to be discipling and ministering to will get a, a hitch in their throat when they pray our father. Because some of them, when they think of that word father, immediately think of the guy who left. Or immediately think of the guy who hit them. Or immediately think of the man who was her rapist. All sorts of horrors and all sorts of traumas bound up often in earthly fatherhood. And the prayer that Jesus has given to us to pray says, I am not talking about the kind of fatherhood that you know. I'm talking about a different father, a father who is in heaven, who is not simply being brought along with you, but a father who is drawing you toward himself, toward his life, toward his will, toward heaven. There's nearness and there's distance. Our father in heaven. And then he does the same thing again. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's distance again. Hallowed means to, to make holy. That's not just the difference between sinful and non-sinful, although clearly it's that. But it's the difference also between holy and common. The things that are of every day of common usage and then the things that are set apart in the temple as holy. The things that are set apart and devoted to God. God, make your name holy which as we see in the scripture, when God is high and lifted up, Isaiah chapter 6, and the angels around him announce, holy, 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 the response for us as unholy people left to ourselves, as sinful people left to ourselves, is to draw back like Isaiah did and say, I am sinful. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people and from a heritage of unclean lips. I'm undone standing here in front of the holiness of God. That is necessary for us to know as we pray. Because if we don't, what we're going to end up is using God. And we're going to construct a God who agrees with all of the things that I believe... A God who aspires for me all of the things that I aspire for myself. A God who will smite all of my enemies. That's not a holy, self-revealing God. That's an idol that we're constructing for ourselves. And ultimately, we become like that. Make your name holy. There's distance, but again, there's nearness. 
Make your name holy. Your name is tied up with your identity. First thing you're going to do when you meet somebody, what's your name? Who are you? How do I identify you? What do I call you? Notice how many times in the biblical story, God or Jesus changes somebody's name. Abram, you're now Abraham. And it seems ridiculous. You old, impotent, infertile man, you are now named father of many nations. Or Simon, you weak cowardly, vacillating, doing stupid stuff all the time, going to run away at the least sign of trouble. You are rock. What does God do? He names people and then he conforms them to their name. He calls something one thing and then makes it true. And has done, Jesus said, that exact same thing for each of us. There is a secret name that is written on a white stone that we don't know. And everything that is happening in our life right now is in order to shape us up to live up to our name. God, though, has no one naming him. God is naming himself. Moses, if you want Pharaoh to know who I am, you tell him, I am that which I am. You don't name me. I name myself. But it is a name that God has revealed to us. It is a name that God has given to us so that we may know him. It is a name that is associated with who he is so that God will say, I will put my name upon that city. And I will be there. I will put my name upon that people and I will be there. This is the place where I am revealing myself to you. We come before God in prayer recognizing if he doesn't reveal himself to us, we know nothing of him. We come to him by mercy. Make your name Holy, holy, distant, but near. Jesus teaches us that with the our Father language. Our Father in heaven. And why does Jesus teach us to do this? Because he tells us elsewhere, no one comes to the Father except Through me. God has said of Jesus, he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. And when he cries out to me, I will hear him. Is it any accident that universally across all cultures with pre-verbal children, when a child is crying out, For attention from a parent, the body language is cruciform. Hands that are reaching up for a father, for a mother, for a parent. Jesus identifies himself with 
him, Jesus identifies himself with us so that through him we can recognize and know the fatherhood of God. Which is why Jesus, as he is being crucified, is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's language from a song, from Psalm 22. And so just as if there were an attack on the United States and you heard uh, the president of the United States stand up and say, oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave, you you would not conclude he's asking whether or not a piece of cloth is outside of the, the, the White House or the Capitol. You would know he's referencing the national anthem. He's referencing a piece of a lyric that ought to drive us to the whole. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in you our fathers trusted. Why have you forsaken me? But I learned to trust you at my mother's breast and from my mother's womb as he watches his own blood spatter on the face of his mother. You are my father, and I am your son, and there will be many brothers and many sisters, a generation yet unborn, who will sing your praise. Jesus is talking about you. You come before the father, and you come before the father in Christ. So Jesus is not just teaching you to pray. Jesus is showing you how he will pray through you. I was taught to pray in Jesus' name. And often I believe that this was an intensifier to get God's attention. And so when Jesus says, if you pray for anything in my name, uh, the Father will grant it. Uh, What I would do often as a teenager especially is to put uh, in Jesus' name, not just at the end, but all the way through the prayer, (laughs) if it was something really important. In Jesus' name, God, please let me pass algebra in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying for us not to do. (laughs) Not with many words. When we are coming before God in Jesus' name, what we are saying is the only way that I am able to call you Father is because a crucified and resurrected Jesus of Nazareth said to the women, it might be the most shocking sentence in all of the Bible, go to my brothers, those that ran out on me, those that failed me, those that would deny even who I am. Go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He identifies himself with us. And we can come then confidently before God because we do not need to perform for him. We do not need to succeed for him. We do not need to be applauded for him. We simply hold out our hands and say, Our Father in heaven, make your name holy. Let's pray. Lord, there are 
probably many in this room who right now are feeling quite distant from your fatherhood. There are some in this room right now who may be going through very difficult times in ministry. They may feel as though they're abandoned. Lord, there may be others who are finding it difficult to come to you in prayer because even though they may know much differently theologically, they, they feel as though you're angry with them. They, they feel as though before you are all of their, their sins and their secrets and that somehow you're, you're looking to lash out at them. Father, I pray that all of us in this room would throw away our prosperity gospels and we would rest in the fact that you see us hidden in Christ and your response to us is exactly what it is to him. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Lord, let that give us boldness to be able to say, you are my father. I am your child. Hear me. And hear me when I pray, not simply for my agenda. When I pray, let your name be magnified. Let your name be made holy. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.